Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge podcast. On this episode, we talk with Idaho's 2024 Teacher of the Year, Trent Van Leuven. Trent is a career technical educator at Mackey Junior Senior High. He tells us about the unique lessons and projects he's spearheaded with students, how Idaho's in the golden age for CTE education, and his ideas for recruiting and retaining teachers in rural schools like his. I hope you enjoy. So Trent, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I'm excited to get to know you a little bit. Um, Can you start by just telling us a bit about yourself, where you're from, why you became a teacher, how long you've been teaching, that kind of thing? Okay, yeah, for sure. Uh, Thanks, Carly. Uh, So I grew up in a little town called Roberts, Idaho, on a dairy farm. And so um, my father and all of my uncles worked on it. So uh, that's my agricultural background. And, uh, you know, I uh, was a student in agriculture sciences in Rigby, and that's where I graduated high school. And I was studying agricultural economics at the University of Idaho. And while I was up there, uh, I was also the state FFA reporter. And so as a state FFA officer, I'd travel across the state and do some workshops and things. And um, while I was at Nez Perce, uh, Mr. Pratt, the ag teacher up there said, Hey, you know, my 30 years of teaching, that's the best workshop I've heard from a state officer. You should go into teaching. And I kind of laughed him off at the time, but, uh, I had 700 more miles to get home. Cause I was, uh, driving down from Nez Perce to Boise and cutting across and doing some more visits along the way. And after 700 miles, I decided I was going to go into ag education. So, wow. Uh, I've been in (laughs) ag education teaching for now 15 years. Mm -hmm. Nice. So what were you presenting at in those workshops way back then? Oh, uh, opportunities in the FFA, career opportunities, you know, uh, some basic things about agriculture and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. it was a really good time. So you got to see a lot of the state during that time also. Yeah, absolutely. So what was it like to find out that you were named Idaho's 2024 Teacher of the Year? Um, Well, uh, gosh, it it was really a surprise for me. Um, And uh, I think it really kind of brought attention to a lot of the great things that can happen when you work with a community. Uh, You know, we've received a lot of recognition our little uh, school district for some of the projects that we've had. And none of those would be possible without a lot of people that have been partnering with us and volunteering. And we've got some really incredible groups that we've been working with over the years, the Idle Fishing Game, uh, the U.S. Forest Service. Um, You know, we've got people uh, in different shops and things. And, you know, at, at times, uh, it's just phenomenal to me about uh, how the community comes together. Uh, there's been numerous times because we have three greenhouses where we'll have a heater go out and all of a sudden we have to get all the plants out of the greenhouse, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, a few text messages and email and we'll have 25 people will just show up and, and bail us out. So we've had nice. a lot of experiences like that. Uh, our little fish lab that has received a lot of attention. Uh, it was funded by donations and grants. And 
we had six or seven volunteers. Some of them came in almost daily to work with students as we built it. And so, you know, it definitely highlights the incredible things that happen when people are interested in what's happening at school and are willing to work with students to give them those opportunities and, and to help mentor them. So uh, that's what was great because, you know, the day that they came out uh, to offer the award, um, I had so many people that have been along with me every step of the way. They were all there. Uh, we had people from the agricultural industry. And what I love about the agriculture industry in Idaho is I'm sure you've probably heard of like the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, everybody in agriculture is like uh, two people removed away from <laughs> each other. And so it's great seeing all these people. And there's been a lot of excitement uh, among some different ag groups and, and farm groups uh, about me being named the state teacher of the year for 2024. And so it's been really awesome that way. So was it an assembly when they presented uh, yes, the award Yes, there for was you? an assembly. Yep. So the whole school was there and you didn't know what the assembly was for, right? Yeah. So, uh, and the elementary was there and what was really cool is my uh, wife and kids happened <laughs> to be there and, uh, you know, having my son and and my daughters there was pretty awesome and so many great friends and, and people from the uh, agriculture industry. So it's phenomenal that mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned some of the projects that you have going on there in Mackey, the fish lab, the greenhouse. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about those and kind of the other projects you have in the works over there? Uh, it seems like we have a different project every week, but, um, the fish lab uh, got started by the ag teacher, Mr. Roach, Fernand Roach, and that was around 1994. And somebody approached him and said, hey, I uh, want you to run Trout Haven. We're kind of going to stop running our little hatchery. And that was just down below the, the reservoir. Mm -hmm. And so the students and him, they would go up there and they were running that for about a year. But at the same time, they decided to dabble in aquaculture and uh, try growing out some tilapia in the greenhouse that the students had built in 1987. And it wasn't too long after they figured out the complications of trying to run a fish farm that's a few miles out of town when you had just like a 45, 50 minute class period. And so what happened is the fish lab started to grow from just being a tilapia setup to uh, raising some rainbow trout and some other things. A uh, thing that's really cool about our area is if you look at all of the state fish hatcheries, uh, the Mackie hatchery raises out probably the greatest variety of uh, fish that you'll find in any hatchery because they do a lot of work with stocking the mountain lakes. Mm -hmm. And so our area, um, there's approximately 55 or plus uh, mountain lakes that are stocked with uh, different species of fish. And mm -hmm. from that inception of the project, uh, Mick Hoover uh, was a fish culturist at the state hatchery. Uh, he worked with students and, and Mr. Roach in order to come up with a facility and to come up with a recirculation system. And they did a phenomenal job and they had a lot of successes. And so when I got here, um, 
there was approximately two fish tanks. Uh, in a couple of years, we added 18. And it was all in this old uh, greenhouse, and they did some great things, but it all kind of came down to one little teeny uh, three-inch wide drain where all the water needed to go if you were bailing, and there were some complications with that. And so we always kind of wanted to have a uh, standalone fish lab that was built with recirculation in mind that would provide a lot of opportunities. And what was phenomenal about it is we were able to get some grant money just so that we could explore the concept. And after that, we got grant after grant after grant. And we had the opportunity we could go after twice as much grant money. And, you know, we were kind of running out of how many people uh, we could approach about funding the project and, you know, have some uh, people with actual construction experience build it. But what we decided to do was to work with the students and find some volunteers to help coach them because I have a limited construction background. I'm a lot smarter now. I think I was learning along with the kids a lot of times, but great things happen when a teacher is willing to say, I don't know, and go out and get some expert help. And, you know, it took four years through COVID uh, to build it, but with the exception of a couple things, the students and volunteers built it. And um, it's a modern marvel. Uh, we went with students to different fish hatcheries. I went to aquariums. I went to different places across the country. Uh, even visited some facilities down in Brazil while I was on vacation. And it is phenomenal. I mean, you get somebody from the aquaculture industry and they come in and they are able to like, marvel at the plumbing that these students did. And so it's been great. And currently we've got a little over 6,000 fish in it. So. Wow. What are and, some of the varieties of fish in there? Uh, in the past, uh, when we had it in the old lab, we had as many as 11 different species. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was good and wild days. We weren't concerned about a lot of things. Uh, with this new facility, we're trying to maintain a disease-free facility so we can kind of act as an extension of the state fish hatchery system. And that would be a very unique thing for any school across the country and so we'd like to be able and you know we've been approached about special projects but that would involve you know being able to stock fish from our lab into different waters uh we've had some students have done some really neat things uh, like kelly gamut uh, she was the first to successfully introduce california golden trout in a stream in idaho and we learned a lot of great things the u.s forest service learned a lot of things from it and uh, some of those things that we learned is that uh, with the abilities we have in this lab that we could produce some fish that are going to survive better for some of these special projects. And so, you know, we're getting tasked with maintaining a fishery and, and also helping create some new ones. So this last fall, we had students with U.S. Forest Service employees, all of them former students of Mackey. We went up to uh, Lower Cedar Creek and uh, the students were able to electroshock and the fish come up and we net them out so we can get some count so we can see how the population is doing. Mm -hmm. And it's a really rewarding experience walking that creek with students and having net out these fish. And some of these fish are some of the same fish that were released eight years ago and being able to see. And if you don't know California golden trout, uh, it's a beautiful fish. I mean, it's like a religious experience <laughs> catching your first one. So. It's nice. quite a thrill working with students. And yeah, what's that like as a teacher being able to 
give them hands-on experiences like that and get out of the classroom and say, you know, we're doing something real and tangible in the world that leads to a real career. Here's people you can meet who have the career. What's it like to be able to do that? Like that's an affordability of the CTE realm that other teachers may not get to do. So what's that like? Um, you know, making those connections is uh, not exactly the easiest thing sometimes. Um, you have to be in the area for quite a bit. And uh, I always wanted to teach in a small school. So having the opportunity to come to Mackey was phenomenal because, uh, you know, it's a small town. I mean, I, I love going to the grocery store. You can't ever get out of the grocery store in less than 15 minutes because you're going to bump into somebody who wants to talk. And, and it's great. I love it. I love running into people. And, you know, being a member of the community, you figure out really quick. Uh, who you can call about this or that. There's probably a hundred different people in the community that have had a phone call from me about, hey, we're working on something like this. What, have you got any ideas? And it's like, well, I, hey, I got a good idea. Let me come over and, you know, we go ahead and fill out some paperwork and they're the guest speaker and we're working on a project with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, that can happen a lot. I, I think it can happen in a lot of different courses. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can definitely take advantage of it. So, uh, you know, I meet with people at church, you know, I, I talk to them in the grocery store, I run into people that know stuff at the lumber store. Um, occasionally I'll go have lunch at the Senior Citizen Center. Uh, they're one of my favorite groups. And I mean, they always know the right people to talk to. Mm -hmm. So, so you're saying those connections in a small town help you to enhance that education for students? Absolutely. And you know, uh, I'll call up somebody and they'll say, you know what, I really don't have a good answer for you on this, but you should call so-and-so. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't just rely on our little community uh, because, you know, there's some things happening in agriculture that don't exist in the big Lost River Valley. And I'll call up uh, some other expert. Um, we were having some trouble finding enough dairy cows for the Eastern Iowa State Fair to have a dairy cow judging event. And so I said, you know, we've needed to have a plant science event. Let's do potato judging. And it's a fairly new competition in the FFA. And I called up uh, a teacher that had had lots of success uh, with the potato judging event. And I said, hey, you know, we'd love to have you officiate for this. And she said, well, tell you the truth, I've got some things figured out, but uh, one of the people that I've got coming is phenomenal and she's great and she works with McCain Foods. And I said, well, who is it? And it turned out to be a former student of mine from Meridian, right? Uh, Kirsten Forster and, and she officiated for the event, but I find myself calling outside of the Valley occasionally too on questions. And it's also great when they're former students of yours. Mm -hmm. So we have a hydroponic greenhouse uh, and we haven't been running it for a year because we had a couple issues that we're trying to resolve. But when I've had fertilizer, problems. I call up a former student that used to be in charge of the hydroponic greenhouse, Haley Hampton. She's working on a master's and working with potatoes right now. And, you know, she's given me some excellent feedback on what we need to be doing fertilizing different and stuff. So mm -hmm. what, when the greenhouse is up and running, what all are you growing in there? Okay. So we have uh, three different greenhouses, the hydroponic greenhouse. Uh, in the past, we did five rows of tomatoes. And we we're producing more tomatoes than Mackie could eat. 
And so we're actually traveling down to the Idle Falls Farmer's Market each week. And that was a great time that I don't want to repeat. So <laughs> we, we've been producing a couple of rows of tomatoes uh, when we have it up and going and taking those to the local grocery store. And it's pretty nice. We typically have a little sign and everybody knows where they're getting the tomatoes. And uh, I think we've tested out probably like 60, 70 different tomatoes with students and found some really good ones that work hydroponically. Uh, one thing that was really exciting is uh, we were looking at some different vine crops because we wanted something that would go up the trellis and not take up a lot of room. So we tried kiwis and that was a disaster. And one of the <laughs> things I figured out is if it doesn't work, just don't worry about it. Just don't do it again. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like you just move on. Chalk it up to a plants. loss. Yeah. You know, we plant like two row or two buckets of this. And if it doesn't work out, we'll never do it again. Uh, there was some excitement about our watermelon uh, that we were trying to grow. Uh, and I, I think they were actually accidentally planted to tell you the truth. And this <laughs> happened to be during COVID and we were getting some watermelons growing and we had to support the watermelon. So, uh, we had a COVID mask, uh, to suspend that melon up as it was growing. And <laughs> I mean, watermelons, absolutely a disaster, not worth the time. But one success that we had was uh, passion fruit. We had some very vibrant, incredible vines. We were probably producing somewhere around 400 passion fruits off of uh, three or four vines. And I mean, the excitement, it's something that nobody ever sees. I couldn't find anybody that was growing it hydroponically in a greenhouse. And so there were some challenges to be addressed, but it's really cool working with the students and coming up with solutions for some of those things. Like, okay, we have no idea how we're going to pollinate these. Uh, how are we going to approach it? Or one issue we had is, hey, I've never pruned uh, these passion fruit vines before. Uh, how are we going to prune these in a hydroponic greenhouse? Because nobody had grown them hydroponically in a greenhouse. What's, mm -hmm. What way can we maximize this? Mm -hmm. And so we uh, practiced pruning, uh, trying out some different things. And then we let some of them go and you'd walk into the greenhouse and we had people that were always checking it out. They'd open up the door and there's passion fruit just hanging down from this little trellis as you're walking into the greenhouse. So mm -hmm. that was pretty cool. Mm -hmm. We have a large bedding plant greenhouse. Uh, we have probably one of the largest, if not the largest plant cells uh, in the state. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's pretty awesome. Uh, and then we have a little conservatory. Right now, we're really excited. Our second generation papaya tree uh, is got a papaya on it. We've got some figs and I can hardly find a fig anymore because the welding students get in there so fast eating these figs <laughs> off the tree and we've had some success with some banana trees and hopefully we'll have some more bananas in February on this larger dwarf cavendish so these are not the things I was expecting you to say you were growing they're kind of unusual did the students help choose what you grew or did you pick it uh absolutely you know uh like we and we've approached that several times with the students uh depending on the space we have is, okay, hey, what vine crop should we try out in the hydroponic greenhouse? Okay, hey, um, there's new varieties of tomatoes every year. We're going to plant 10 uh, buckets and figure out something different. And so, yeah, they come up with the ideas for those. So 
uh, the conservatory, I mean, it went from like looking bare and in one year is completely overgrown. Um, we need to get in there and prune a lot of stuff and probably decide on some other things to put into it just to try out. Mm-hmm. Like our sensitive plant has got like drowned out. So are you, if you're familiar with the sensitive plant, you can touch it and the leaves all fold up. Wow. So yeah, it got overshaded. So anyways. So you've got your students raising fish, raising plants, they're growing produce for the grocery store, they're entering potatoes in contests. Um, any other big projects we miss that, that they work on? So I do teach welding uh-huh. and I have shop class um, and we have a great body of student officers. So we just sold a trailer that was constructed over the last year. Um, and the student officers, they come up with a lot of great ideas and I was really proud of them last year. Uh, they said, you know, we've been talking about painting the fire hydrant. So they're a little more visible at town. And so we talked to the fire department, the mayor, they were thrilled. They wanted all the fire hydrants painted yellow. And so last year, the big project was painting these fire hydrants. So we got out there and one day we painted all 67 fire hydrants. The only hydrant we missed was grown under or was underneath a tree and it just happened to be wedged between two uh firefighters houses so we all had a good <laughs> laugh about that hopefully they know where their hydrant is right yeah so uh anyways the conversation this year was well what kind of service project do we want to do for the community and just like everybody we had a very brutal winter especially in Mackey, and uh, we had individuals working with the county the highway district the city that we're having a tough time finding the hydrants underneath the snow. And so, you know, talking back and forth, uh, we decided that we were going to make some flags with some rebar and cut out some triangles on our CNC plasma table. And we're gonna have the students that are just learning how to weld, weld those up. And so those got painted and we still have a few to put out, but today's project was going out with students and, and getting those driven next to the fire hydrant. So, uh, we'll be able to find them in the deep snow. So, uh-huh. you know, we find lots of little projects like that. Mm-hmm. So what feedback do you get from students with this kind of learning where they're out in the community doing things? Do they seem uh, to enjoy you know, it? Uh, yeah, they do. Um, and obviously not everybody's always going to be uh, excited and happy about the project and what have you. But what I found out is if you have students work on these kinds of projects, maybe they were grumbling. Uh, for instance, when we were working on the fish lab, there was a lot of drywalling to do. And I hate drywalling work. You know, if I had the money, I would, I would hire it out every single time. Uh, but you have those same students that did all that drywalling and it was a tough few weeks as, they, as we were doing it. And, you know, they come back years later and they're showing that project. Hey, look, this is the fish lab that I built. You know, mm-hmm. And so like uh, today, our welding class really got into it. They were uh, storming off the bus as we were driving to each uh, hydrant and, you know, talking about, you know, like they were like the seals. I mean, they were running to every hydrant, driving <laughs> them in. And that welding class probably put in about half the flags today. So that was, that was phenomenal. So, um, yeah, they get into it mm-hmm. and everybody's going to find something that interests them and you can't make everybody happy all the time. but. You know, mm-hmm. our goal is that they find something they can be passionate about and excited about from time to time. Did you take classes like this when you were in high school? 
Uh, yeah, I took agricultural classes at Rigby High School. So my ag teachers were the late uh, Joe Burry and uh, Robert Hill, and Mr. Hill is uh, still working at Rigby today. Nice. So I understand that before you taught at Mackey, you taught at in Boise, is that right? Uh, the Meridian School District. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So moving from there to Mackey is pretty drastic. So why did you decide to do that? Uh, so I actually did my student teaching at Soton, Washington, and mm -hmm. Glenn Landers did a phenomenal job uh, showcasing the merits of working in a small school district, and I loved it. I always wanted to work in a small school district. Uh, I graduated college in the year 2009 with the economic crisis, and there was six of us that graduated, and there was only three jobs in the state of Idaho for an ag teacher at that time, and two of them were in Meridian, and I married a, a wonderful dental hygienist, and moving her out in the boonies was not exactly an option as we were both coming out of college. So uh, I enjoyed my time in Meridian. Um, in fact, my first year I was teaching between Rocky Mountain and Mountain View High Schools. And while I was at Rocky Mountain High School, that first uh, day, and for me it was just uh, incredible, because they always do these like first of the school year assemblies. And I'd never been in a gym, that, a high school gym that was loaded with so many students. I think there were something like 2,100 students in there. And they had some students assigned to come down and they did some games down there. And I mean, it was pretty easy to be lost in a, a large school district like that. My first year I got to Mackey. And I think at that time we, our populations come up a lot. Uh, but we only had about 35 kids in the high school when I first started 10 years ago. And I got there, it was the first day assembly, and student council was down there, which made up a portion of that 35, and they started calling people down from, you know, the bleachers, which they were all sat in a very small little section. And okay, we need two from each class to do this, and two from each class to do this. And by the time we were done, uh, there was only four people in the bleachers watching the activity, right? <laughs> And it felt like home, so yeah. it was a big jump. But how uh, many students are there now? Uh, you know, between grades seven through twelve, I think we're up to like one hundred eight. Mm -hmm. That is so, a lot of growth. Yeah, my second year, uh, I looked over the rolls, and I was going to have about twenty-five students, but we had a large eighth-grade class, so we started teaching an eighth-grade ag class then. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's come up. It's not growing leaps and bounds, but it looks like we're at a pretty good number for being consistent, I guess. Mm -hmm. So as you come into this new role of teacher of the year, you get to become a spokesperson of sorts for teachers across the state. And teachers don't always have as much visibility or voice as other stakeholders in education. So now that you have this platform, what do you most want to advocate for in terms of bettering Idaho's education system? Uh, I think foremost, um, teacher retention and recruitment is pretty important. Um, especially in our rural remote schools. Um, you know, I, I think uh, back on a, a story I heard in Brazil about two donkeys and each one of them had a different load. Uh, one of the donkeys had a load of cotton on its back and one had a load of sugar. 
And the one donkey looked at the other and said, okay, now, hey, be very conscientious of where we're going uh, because where some people can go, others can't. And, you know, the other donkey didn't want to hear any of it, but they came up to a river and that donkey with the load of sugar uh, jumped in and the sugar started to dissolve and the donkey made it across. The other donkey jumped in with the load of cotton and it just swelled, got really heavy and it pulled the donkey down. And something that a lot of people don't understand is that there are some differences between our small school districts and our biggest school districts. I feel like I'm uniquely qualified having taught in the biggest school district in the state and have moved to a smaller school district. I, I think I understand some of those issues. Um, and I think I have an opportunity to talk about some of those issues. And when I talk to some of my colleagues and friends that larger school districts and I talk about teacher retention, everybody's got the same kind of retention issues. And let's say across the board, there's a 30% uh, turnover rate in one big school versus a small, smaller school. Uh, what people don't understand is if there's no continuity whatsoever, there's no accountability. And we can't have accountability in education unless there's some type of continuity. So in our small school districts, that 30% turnover rate is a much bigger issue because your entire science department just left because you lost a science teacher. So who's gonna answer the questions about the curriculum or, uh, or why did we get this textbook or hey, where's all the lab supplies for this? And you're starting from, uh, from zero every time you, you lose a teacher in our small school districts. And mm -hmm. I think it's something that we can address with a lot of creativity. And there's some things that we can do. Some There's actually some economic type things that can be done differently that would help the teacher retention issues in the small school districts. And some of the challenges that our teachers have in these school districts is six different preps. And, you know, if you're prepping for six different classes, it's, it's, it's tough. I mean, when I was in the West Ada School District having two different preps a semester, you know, now I've got eight. Um, it's, it presents a lot of challenges. So mm -hmm. the, and when we lose teachers in our small schools, a lot of times they're not going to another school. They're, they're burnt out. So. so just so the listeners know, when he says a prep, he means like a subject that the teacher teaches. So... Um, can you just run through some of your preps so they can have an example? Oh, I'll probably forget one, but uh, I have intro to ag. So I've got an eighth grade intro to ag. I've got a dual credit range science class that's offered for the College of Southern Idaho. I have a welding class. I have a horticulture class, which is also dual credit for the College of Southern Idaho. I've got an ag occupations course, a fabrication course, an intro to mechanics course, and the spring semester it will be fish and wildlife. Uh, I've got a leadership course, and I think that's all of them. So every one of those classes, he's got to design the curriculum for it and plan the lessons for every day and every week. And in bigger districts, they can have two preps. So a teacher might teach um, three sections of welding and three sections of horticulture. So they're only doing the prep work for two kinds of classes. But in a smaller district with fewer teachers, um, you've and fewer students to fill the sections. He's got to do the prep for eight 
And he doesn't, you don't get extra prep time with every additional prep, right? You have your one fixed hour a day, no matter how many preps you have, right? That's correct. Yep. So that's one thing that can contribute to a lack of retention for teachers. And you said that the teachers who leave rural schools, you think they're not going to another district, they're leaving their I, profession? I think quite frequently that's the case, or they're going to a larger school. Mm -hmm. So like uh, the economics, um, uh, increases in teacher pay help out remarkably for recruitment. And I love the direction the state's gone. Uh, for instance, uh, I think the State Department of Education is doing a great job. Uh, the investments that the governor's office has been making in education, uh, our career technical education uh, department is phenomenal. I mean, even before you know receiving this title, uh, I was able to get on the phone with if I ever had an issue or a question and always very responsive. Uh, personally, I think we're uh, currently in the golden age of career technical education in Idaho. And when I first started teaching, you know, uh, there was no funding increase for about 20 years in secondary career technical education programs. And so the investment's been phenomenal. Um, but one of the things is like economics wise, uh, we actually have some really interesting economic type incentives that encourage teachers to go to different areas. So for instance, when I first started teaching in 2009, uh, I came in and we were frozen in the salary schedule, right? There was no way to move up. So for five years, I was frozen. Now, at that same time, about my fourth or fifth year, we were hiring teachers from other school districts and we were giving them all their years of experience. But uh, sorry, you know, you're in the school district. It's been four or five years, but we're never going to give you those years of experience. So what do you do if you're frozen for five years and you're at the bottom of the salary schedule? you move to another school district so that you can get the raise, right? And so some of those kinds of things in economics doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. And, you know, back to my little story about the two donkeys, right? In the career enhancement, um, you know, you get a bump in pay in a lot of school districts and the state helps support that for having a master's degree or a doctorate. And the thing that really brings value to our small school districts isn't necessarily that masters. It's a good thing, but a better thing for our small school districts would be to uh, have that career enhancement be on uh, multiple endorsements. Because in our larger school districts, you'll have somebody that'll be teaching econ and they have an econ endorsement. Uh, in Little Mackey, Idaho, and in a lot of our smaller schools, you need somebody that can teach one section of economics. How do, they, how do you get somebody that has an endorsement? Or you'll have one health class, or you may have just one speech class. Now you're trying to find somebody that's got the correct endorsements in those subject areas. So multiple endorsements helps out a lot. And there's been some instances, I have my natural science endorsement. And you know, in the last 10 years, we've I think we've had six different science teachers in Mackey. And at one point we were not able to find anybody that wanted to be a science teacher full-time. We were able to pick up a part-time science teacher and uh, she went full-time this last year. But uh, all of a sudden uh, we had a couple classes that were getting taught and everybody else was in IDLA, but we couldn't put the eighth graders on IDLA because there just wasn't that option. 
And so on top of one of my other ag classes, because I had a natural science endorsement, I was teaching earth science uh, simultaneously with another class. And, you know, having that multiple endorsement brought more value to the school district than say masters would. So, you know, having that opportunity to have multiple endorsements count for a career enhancement and that would incentivize teachers to get those multiple endorsements. And that'd be huge for a small district. That's really interesting. And I think that's a super creative idea. So you guys were sending some students to IDLA because the classes couldn't be offered there in person? That is correct, yeah. So would they like go to a computer lab for yep. that hour during the school day and do their IDLA? That's how it'd go, yep. Wow. And so the IDLA room, and this can be very chaotic because, you know, typically, you know, we're over on the FTE, so you have somebody that's a paraprofessional. Now all of a sudden they have uh, 25 different students that are in this small room all on IDLA. A vast majority of them would have been on the science class, uh, the same science class, but some of them were doing other things. And that's a student management nightmare for many. So it's complicated. You know, yeah. IDLA offers a lot of incredible opportunities for students. Um, it's not right for every student. Mm -hmm. It can be complicated. So. Mm -hmm. so, so we're glad to not be in that situation now. Yeah. So what can lead to retention issues are the multiple preps, maybe having like a salary frozen. What other things can lead to retention issues in rural areas? Um, even and this fits into recruitment as housing. And oh, yeah. There's been a lot of discussion about that. A simple uh, a thing that would help out in those regards is to have a revolving grant for our smallest remote schools that school districts can apply for. And, you know, for less than $500,000 a year, uh, you know, over a 10 year period, you could have schools that could build uh, new teacher housing. And you know, it is complicated and I've been there. Like coming out of the economic crisis, uh, my wife had a really good paying job in Moscow. And the interesting thing is my first day of work started like July 1st in the West Ada School District. And just because of the way it worked out, I didn't get my first paycheck till October, right? <laughs> so what do you do, right? And the first thing that everybody cut in the economic crisis was uh, dental insurance. And so my wife was substituting that. She was working five days a week in Moscow and now all of a sudden, you know, she's substituting and trying to find housing was complicated. And uh, uh, a good friend uh, and ag teacher in Meridian, uh, Jack Blattner, he set us up in his guest house and, you know, he didn't gouge us, he, he took really good care of us. and. That way we're able to come in for those first couple months with some flexibility and, and then we're able to get some housing figured out. And sometimes that's how housing is. When we moved to Mackey, um, uh, we loaded up not knowing exactly where we were going to live. We crashed at some friend's house that first night and then we went trying to find a place to stay. I mean, we had the trailer loaded up and we had our firstborn with us who's about three or four months. and old and yeah just we yeah we were homeless <laughs> and things worked out really well for us you know we found a place and we were able to make it work for a couple months and and we're indeed very grateful but those are the issues that you run into so how long did it take you to find a house in Mackey 
Oh, it took us uh, about four months um, to and get And you somewhere. just stayed with a friend that whole time? Uh, we stayed with a friend the first night, and then we found a little place. It was like a one-bedroom, uh, one-bath house, really tiny. And uh, we found something that was a little bit larger. We rented for a while, and we were trying to find our dream house because uh, my wife and I, we actually bought our burial plots last year in Mackey. You know, we're planning on staying here. Wow. So <laughs> we wanted to find our dream house, you know, not go through a whole bunch of houses because it's, it's so rough moving, you know. Um, and we eventually decided, hey, you know what? We're not finding our dream house that we can afford. So we bought the place that we have. And now we have four kids. And boy, that house still feels small, you know. But mm-hmm. it works out. So housing is another issue. And you mentioned uh, some creative solutions you had. So you said the... Um, multiple endorsements, grants for housing, any other ideas for recruitment and retention? Um, well, another thing is, and, and I appreciate Idaho Ed News, their headline that they have every year, uh, is like the superintendent shuffle. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things is if you leave the United States, some countries in order to retain staff, and I obviously don't want to go this direction, but if you are going to get a retirement in some of these countries, you have to teach in the interior for a while. Um, so what we have right now is an economic incentive to jump into a bigger school district mm-hmm. because how Percy operates, and I might be butchering this, but uh, the last five years, the four best paying years, they take an average of that and it's like 80%. And you have to reach the rule of 90 so there's an incentive and that's one of the things that drives uh the administration shuffling it's mm-hmm. also something that drives uh teacher shuffling is and my wife has told me this uh hey you know what about the last two three years let's go find a bigger school district so we can uh grow the percy a little bit mm-hmm. um one thing that would help out with the retention and the legislation legislator late oh, i'm sorry the legislators did a really good job uh, bumping up beginning teacher pay. And I think that's done a lot of great things. And I think we're going to see a lot more interest and enrollment in ed programs. But uh, by uh, working on these retirement issues, it's going to help drive retention a bit. So one idea is, you know, if you have somebody that works 10 years in a qualifying remote school district, then you adjust the rule of 90 to maybe a rule of 85 or 80 or something to that effect. Mm. And, you know, that carries a much heavier price tag, but, you know, if we could, it would be a really good solution to drive retention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was a starting teacher at one point, and I think back on some of the mistakes I made, oh my heavens, right? <laughs> um, and it's challenging because everybody has to learn from their mistakes and everybody's going to make some small little mistakes teaching as we learn how we can be better educators. And, you know, in our remote school districts, um, gosh, almost half of our current teachers uh, have gone through the ABCTE route in Mackey, right? And the learning curve not coming out of teacher prep program is a little bit steeper. And, you know, uh, our small school districts, they find themselves being the minor league for the major league teams a lot of times where you grow and you 
work with teachers and you help them grow professionally and then they find themselves in a bigger school district later on. And I'm going to pop in there and just explain that to listeners really fast. So ABCTE, that's the American Board for the Certification of Teachers. I can't remember what the E stands for, but basically it allows a teacher or a person who has a bachelor's degree but not in education to go online, um, take this course, complete a certification process, and become a teacher without doing student teaching and without going through a traditional program. So that's what he's talking about there. Um, so it sounds like you have some really interesting ideas for retention and recruitment. Is that your main um, item that you're going to be drawing attention to, or are there others you're focusing on as well? Um, well, I've, I don't know, my brain never shuts off. One thing, having been broken down on the side of the road <laughs> several times driving bus on trips with students, um, it would be great to get to the point where uh, you could call any dispatch and they have the phone number so that they can call a the school district where you're broke down at to help get kids off the road. So that would be an incredible, easy, cheap network that could you know help safeguard students. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't mind seeing that happen. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's see, um, what do we wanna talk about next? So State Superintendent Debbie Critchfield has prioritized expanding CTE opportunities for Idaho students. So with that increased focus and funding, I mean, you called it the golden age of CTE for Idaho. What do you envision for CTE education in Idaho going forward? What are your biggest hopes? I, I see a lot of uh, opportunities in career technical education and uh, teaching some of these shop classes uh, really has opened my eyes to uh, the thing that we all learn in our education prep programs is that there's multiple intelligences. And I mean, I've got students that I've graduated that are diesel mechanics now that are living their best life that had a more difficult time in other classes, but they found a home out here in the shop. And what was incredible about that is that, uh, in fact, we just graduated a student a while ago that's doing a phenomenal job, living his best life, really thrilled. But at one particular time, there was teachers wondering, are we gonna get this student graduated? And he got so passionate about welding. And that's what like brought him to school every day so that he could be out in the welding shop. And you know, if we're not uh, offering career technical education programs, uh, we're missing those students and we need to be responsive to them. Uh, and, you know, I always try to give students real world experiences and uh, Dr. Linda Clark, the president of the State Board of Education, uh, she put in words better than, you know, I ever had. Uh, but when she was uh, talking uh, at that assembly where I got the award, she talked about the fourth R, which is reality and career technical education I can help out in those regards. Like reading, writing, arithmetic, reality? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Because, you know, we got to prepare students for the real world. And, you know, I've got a lot of students that are in my mechanics classes. And we do all kinds of things from residential and uh, electricity to um, a little bit of plumbing and, and what have you. And I tell the students, you know, you might not want to get into a trade, but I want you to know 
that you can do this stuff, but also most importantly, you know when to call somebody in the trades, right? Mm-hmm. When you know that you're over your head, right? For sure. And so you provide those opportunities for those students. And career technical education can do a really good job. And the thing that is done really well, and I love the direction the state's taken, the CT for the federal Perkins, to get the federal Perkins dollars, one of the things is they want us to have a comprehensive local needs assessment. And I was like, oh no, another meeting that we have to put together. and. Uh, they had some different people. I contacted a friend at the College of Southern Idaho to sit on this uh, committee with us. I got people from the local economic development. We got some ranchers. We had other teachers. We had the counselor, the superintendent. We had some students. We had parents. Uh, we actually had the student. She chaired the meeting and did a great job. And everybody's talking about, you know, what opportunities exist in our little valley and how we can prepare students for those jobs. And I have an advisory committee and we have the opportunity to have those discussions like, hey, there's this opportunity coming. Uh, there's a lot of people uh, hopeful that the mine will reopen in Mackey. We're the Mackey miners, right? And right up there on the mine hill, there's some great opportunities for students. And so it's like, well, how can we prepare students for these opportunities? And CTE can do a really good job. And what I liked about that is in the past, we always had our technical skills uh, or our uh, technical advisory committee. And all of a sudden uh, with the CLNA group, we had other stakeholders that were being left out that had the opportunity to talk about it. And well, how can we incorporate this in other course subjects? And how can we address these labor shortages in the area? So, you know, that's some of the good things that CTE can do throughout the state. Yeah, We just need to bring the right people together and talk about it. Mm And the opportunities. For sure. So I wanted to ask you too about um, Idaho's outgoing teacher of the year, Karen Lauritsen. So she, I interviewed her in a previous podcast, but she left the state and the teaching profession after she was targeted and attacked for some of her personal beliefs. And she said she couldn't be the teacher she needed to be in Idaho, citing in part a mounting distrust of and disrespect toward educators. So I wondered if her story at all impacted how you feel about being the next teacher of the year. You know, uh, I, I think it's unfortunate. I, I feel bad that that was her experience. Um, I really uh, am, I don't really feel like I've had any issues or plan on having issues. Um, like that's hasn't been my experience in Idaho. Um, I've had so many incredible opportunities. Uh, I know so many people across the state, uh, and you know, I've been very fortunate and I've got so many great partners and, and friends that have come to my aid. And, uh, I, I, yeah, I just, it's unfortunate that was her experience. Um, I think there can be, um, some consideration that maybe there's Oh, some distrust or something in education. And I think there's like some things that have changed so fast. And I think back on my first year of teaching, if there was a disagreement with a student, a student misbehaved, you had until the end of the school day to call home, right? So that you could talk about the issue, right? And you could call up mom before the student talked to him. 
But what I found out is my second year teaching, everybody had a cell phone and I'd call up during a lunch break or something like that. And the student called up during the passing period and had already laid out a version of the story, right? Of what happened. Um, and, you know, I personally, I think I've seen maybe a decrease in uh, the attendance at say parent-teacher conferences. And part of that is because the communications changed so much because now we have power school and so many different platforms where parents can log in daily to see what the grades are and stuff. And, you know, we have all this technology in order to communicate and there's so many opportunities that we can take to uh, discuss uh, what's happening in class. And a lot of times, I think it was my second year teaching, I was teaching in four different classrooms at three different schools simultaneously. So I'd start at Rocky Mountain and then, you know, the afternoon I was Eagle High School. At the next day on the block schedule, I was at Centennial High School. And it was towards the end of the semester and there was a parent that called one of these four phones that connects to me, right? And could you please give me a call? I have no idea why my son has to raise chickens to pass your class. And I'm like, that wasn't even the assignment, right? <laughs> so at that moment, I was like, you know, I, I got to do a better job communicating, especially where nobody can get me on the phone where I'm traveling. And so I started doing a newsletter and showcasing what work is being done. And, you know, I put different stakeholders on there and the email list keeps growing. And, you know, the fact that parents know what their students are doing and kind of what we're talking about, we have, you know, what's happening in class. I think that helps a lot. Being in a small town, you know, I bump into everybody's parents at the grocery store, at the gas station anyways, or at the games. Um, in fact, one teacher that does it really well is uh, Carrie Simmons. She's my uh, daughter's first grade teacher. And I mean, I don't know how she does it, but every day she sends out an email with a little like four or five minute video that details everything that the kids did that particular day. And she wow. starts it off, hey, it's day 55 of being, you know, of being smarter, right? And she holds up student artwork and stuff like that. And I mean, it's phenomenal, you know? So there's those opportunities and, you know, probably something that could help safeguard teachers a bit. Uh, I am going to venture that maybe 95% of teachers don't know about this. And I'm sure the general population doesn't, but it's state statute. Um, in fact, it's uh, section 18-916, abuse of school teachers. And it says every parent, guardian, or other person who upbraids, insults, or abuses any teacher in the public schools in the presence and hearing of a pupil thereof is guilty of a misdemeanor. And, you know, I think I've had maybe a few instances. I probably wouldn't ever call the cops in any of those instances, but I uh, like, letting the public understand that, you know, in 1979, they decided that, you know what, teachers shouldn't be chastised in front of students because that interrupts education, right? It, it sabotages things. Um, and if the general population knew about that, and if teachers knew about that, I think it could change some different things. And, you know, the law was passed in 1979. Maybe it's a good idea to even revisit it and consider how do we modernize it in the age of uh, social media. Uh, one interesting thing, if the legislation uh, should come up, you know, even if it doesn't pass, it can generate some conversations. And 
you know, I think in reality, uh, I think things are really good in education. I think a vast majority, like over 90% of students, if they were asked would say, you know, most of my teachers uh, appreciate me and want the best for me. And, you know, all the research shows, and it's kind of funny is uh, people say, you know, schools in America are struggling, but their own schools, they'll go ahead and give an A for a passing grade, right? Everybody thinks that there's huge problems in education, but if you ask them, right, everybody's really happy with their home schools and stuff. So, mm -hmm. I don't know, there's always room for improvement and stuff, but I'm very hopeful and, you know, I, I love the teaching profession. I love Idaho and, you know, I've had so many positive interactions and stuff. It's what makes it all worthwhile, so. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, with that, let's move into the lightning round. This is the last segment I always do when I have a teacher on my show. And I'll just ask you three questions and ask you to respond in just a minute or less, just real quick. So question one, what's your favorite part about being a teacher? Oh, uh, especially in career technical education, I love uh, being able to innovate with students and see those lights turn on and see them get excited about those kinds of things. Question two, what has being a teacher taught you and what's been its greatest lesson? Oh, here's another long answer, but one time I was on a, a trip. I take students across the country every year as we do an ag tour. And a student taught me a very valuable lesson. She asked a question while we were in South Dakota, why does the hay look so terrible? Don't these guys know what they're doing, right? And we were able to talk about the different climates. Like, hey, you know, we have a wetter spring, they have a wetter summer, so their rain's constantly getting rained on. And from that lesson and that interaction I had with that student when we crossed the country, uh, whether it's at a cranberry farm or a, a bison ranch or wherever it is, uh, we're able to talk about developing empathy for other producers and other people that are just playing the cards that were dealt them. Because everybody in farming and agriculture and in all professions are playing the cards that have been dealt them. Right. So I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Last question. What advice would you give a brand new first year teacher? Uh, so I think the most important thing is to have the correct mindset that uh, if you want to be a teacher and you have a title of teacher that you have to embrace the title of student. And if we can be lifelong learners and find some mentors and there's something incredible about finding a great mentor that helps coach you. So I've got a really awesome fish lab and it's because of, and everything I know, and I, I'm actually going to a, a conference to talk about developing aquaculture systems and things like that. But the only reason I can claim that is because I've had a lot of people that coach me, especially like Mick Hoover, that's taught me everything I know about recirculation systems. So, you know, you find a great mentor and, you know, you, you grow and you develop and then you find additional mentors. And that's what keeps teaching like intriguing and, and fun is that you can grow constantly. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Trent. Is there anything else that you want to add before we go? Uh, no, we're good. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Carly. Yeah, thanks for your time and thanks for coming on today. Thanks for listening to the Teacher's Lounge podcast, and don't forget to go to idahoeducationnews.org for all the latest.